from KQED. We get a call that Kevin died. He had gotten a text, and I can't remember who it was from. I almost want to say it was like an officer of some sort. Hey, man, heard some news. Kevin's dead. Thought you should know. And that's when Doug said, hey, Bailey, I just got a text. They said they found him on the side of the detox center, dead, I think, of, uh, you know, hypothermia uh, due to alcoholism. They found, like, a bottle. You know, he was clearly drinking at night. Kevin was in bad shape. His drug of choice changed over time. There was methamphetamine, which he got arrested for about 20 years ago, later opioids. He tried pretty much every drug out there, and alcohol was always around. He was living on the streets years before Bailey Stewart and her husband Doug met him. Bailey was used to hearing these kinds of stories. She had parents who drank and did drugs, and Doug's job was to help people who were homeless. Sometimes he got these calls. Doug's like their next of kin. We had a homeless person get beat to death, and they called Doug Stewart and said, we need you to ID the man. You know, they had heard about a guy who they'd found dead, and I heard a rumor that I was dead. And um, because of the facility I was in, they can neither confirm or deny whether I'm there or not. I got to reach out and told him that, hey, I'm not dead. I'm doing great, man. Everything is good. Doug got the news. It was not Kevin Coons. It was a Kevin, just not Kevin Coons. Now it's just a big butt of the joke every time we almost see Kevin. Hey, Kevin, you remember that time we thought you were dead? <laughs> Kevin was in a drug and alcohol treatment program, but that's not how the story is going to end. Last chapter, we heard about how Antioch was struggling to help its homeless population. Now we're going to focus on one story about a guy who went as far as he could to help one person who was homeless. But how do you help one person? Can you help one person? Doug Stewart and his family were about to find out. I'm Devin Kadiyama, and this is American Suburb. Chapter 8, Rabbit Hole. This is home to me. Being out here, just like, wow, it's a lot of black people. It's like being in Oakland. You can't always blame things on people from outside. Oh, I know what the word they use. Ghetto. A rich ghetto. This, then, is not the end of the Antioch story, just the beginning of a new chapter. The train tracks out here in the suburbs have a different feel than tracks in the city. The sprawl in Contra Costa County is separated by these California hills, some with cows and farms on them. There's a sense of romance and freedom. But when you're here long enough, you start to notice people walking along these tracks or sleeping near them, and the feeling changes. The tracks run along the channel that connects the bay to the San Joaquin Delta, the state's second longest river. Kevin Coons found himself lost on these tracks in his 40s. He'd burned all of his relationships, and he was strung out on drugs and alcohol, walking away from the larger cities and further east into the suburbs. Kevin ended up in Martinez, a quiet all-American city along the Carquinez Strait. It's the city where John Muir lived and where the baseball hero Joe DiMaggio was born. And it's where Kevin Coons experienced what he calls true homelessness, just sleeping outside in bushes and down near the same train tracks that led him here. After a period of time being there, you do become accustomed to it, accepting it like this is what it is, and it's all it's ever going to be. You come to a place where 
you just tend to lose the capacity to hope. I remember feeling like um, like I couldn't imagine any set of circumstances where I could pull myself out of the situation where I was at. Like I'd gone too far down the rabbit hole. Outreach. This is Doug. What's up, my man? Rabbit holes are where you might find Doug Stewart, Bailey's oh, husband. Right. Doug was spending his time in places most people will never see, providing homeless outreach in the middle of the night all across the county. We just go where the phone takes us. He walked through the woods to find people who needed blankets or food. There ain't nobody coming to help us out here. He drove on the train tracks where nobody else is allowed to go. Whoosh. Doug drove a big, dark SUV, wore bulletproof vest, and looked a little like a cop at first glance. Doug was the guy who could have gotten you into shelter if you thought you were ready. Three David, are you out here? Blonde crew cut, blue eyes. He can be tough, but he's mostly this gentle guy. And he's got this way of talking to you, like he knows you. What's up, dog? That blanket's set. Here, take both of them. They're both thin, so take two. Doug was working a shift like this when he found Kevin sleeping under a bush behind a hospital. Doug remembers Kevin wearing a bandana over his head like a biker. He was a little taller than Doug, just over six feet, but he remembers Kevin looked scrawny. That first meeting, Kevin got some socks and something to eat. Then over the months, Doug and Kevin would get to know each other. Doug would bring him things he needed and they'd talk. Kevin looked forward to seeing him. This is hard to explain when you... Um there is a state of mind that you, or a state of existence that you become accustomed to when you're homeless. Um, you're kind of a subspecies of society. And, um, and it was nice to just to talk to someone who wasn't in the same state that you were. Doug talked to a lot of homeless people, but he got to know Kevin a little better. Then one day, Doug asked Kevin to help him move into his new house, said he'd give him some cash. Kevin said sure. Doug knew Kevin was still an alcoholic at this time, but for whatever reason, Doug trusted him. And then Doug did something he'd never done before. It was at the end of the day when they'd finished moving all the family stuff, and Kevin told Doug to just drop him back off where he found him, back on the streets. But Doug didn't do that. He pulled me aside and he said, look, uh, my family and I were talking about it and, you know, we want you to stay with us. I really did not expect that at all. And I said, is this just you or is this really, you know, because he had kids too. And uh, they genuinely wanted to do it. I was hesitant, reluctant at first because I had come to uh, care for and respect him also. And... I didn't want to jeopardize that in any way by making my problems into his problems. and uh, But we gave it a try. Coming up, what happens when Kevin actually moves in? When we return after this short break. Support comes from the San Francisco Foundation, proud sponsor of American Suburb. The San Francisco Foundation works with its donors and community partners on a bold equity agenda for greater racial and economic inclusion for everyone in the Bay Area. History tells us that when community leaders, nonprofits, donors, residents, and business partners work together, all Bay Area residents benefit. Learn more at sff.org. When Doug Stewart asked Kevin Coons, the guy he found sleeping under a bush, to move in, it was an impulse. So what was it about 
him? Was it something in his eye? Was it the trust when you first met him that you that you brought him back to your place? What made you bring him home? <laughs> I don't know. I just did it. I just did it. He caught me at the right minute. I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I couldn't tell you. I just did. Doug's got a feeling for... Uh, I do stupid he, stuff. No, not just... He learns from his mistakes, but... He's he's got a good act to call bullshit when he hears it, you know, like like uh, Emma Swan from Once Upon a Time. She can tell whether or not you're lying. And I swear Doug's got that. (laughs) Bailey loved Doug's job. When they first met, she was working at a Starbucks in a small town nearby called Pacheco. And she remembers Doug coming in with the shirt that read Town of Pacheco, homeless. She remembers Doug talking about walking the streets, trying to help. This was early in his career. Parolee, dude. I thought parolees on probation because nobody's going out there to help the homeless at night. You're crazy. You're on parole. Bailey went home and says she actually Googled Doug and she found out that he wasn't this crazy guy. And she thought it was so cool that he was helping people. And she started falling in love with him. I want to be a part of that so bad. So, yes, I stalked him. I'd. After work at 11 o'clock at night, I'd wait there till like 1230 to see if I'd see him walking around the streets. Stupid. Stupid, I know. Bailey understood that a lot of Doug's job was the selfless and thankless work, and that getting people to change their lives isn't glamorous. It's real, and it's messy. Bailey knew this because growing up, her mom drank. And at the same time she was meeting Doug and falling in love, her mom's life was falling apart. And eventually, her mom became one of Doug's clients. Ma had a lot of demons. Bailey always knew her mom drank. It started well before Bailey was even born. But growing up, she says no one would have known about all these problems. That her mom kept the surface pretty polished. My mom was a mom. She was home cooking dinner when we were home. Um, Home after school. I mean, she was your typical normal mom. The only thing with mom was is that she drank a lot. So before there was Kevin, who they brought in off the streets, there was Bailey's mom, who was also homeless. Both were on similar paths. Drugs and alcohol had put them at their bottom, but they had two very different outcomes. Bailey's mom stayed with the family only for a short while. She ended up going off on her own. Kevin's story was different. For one, he was a stranger. The first time I just brought him home and you're like, dude, what are you doing? And remember, I just showed up with him. It's not a surprise when you live in it all the time, you know? It's not a surprise that Doug's going to bring home a stray. Dude, I brought home animals, everything. I just saved a raccoon, what, a couple months ago? The raccoon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we fell in love with him. Anyway, uh, so it's not a, it wasn't a surprise for me. <laughs> but I did forget to mention how the kids handle it, because everyone wants to know, well, you brought a Strange homeless man, and Kevin is not a little man. He's like six-something big white boy. Uh, Kids were fine. You know, they were born into this homeless outreach. This is what Dad does for a living. So if Dad says it's okay, then he's got to be okay. So he became Uncle Kevin. The family could afford to feed Kevin, and the two kids shared a room to make space. Kevin remembers that first night with the family. It was funny that, you know, we didn't have a bed there, so we just set up this, you know, like, it was an assortment of like cushions and things like that. And I remember that they even set out like one of the kids' teddy bears or something like for me to sleep with, you know. 
Shortly after he moved in, Doug and Bailey helped Kevin get food stamps, and they pointed him to this drug and alcohol treatment program. And he went. But he wasn't changing his behavior much. He was just kind of going through the motions. And everyone saw this. They discovered together the transition to a regular life wasn't going to be easy, even with this amazing opportunity of having a family to support him. Getting him to stop being homeless, that was hard. He wanted to sit back there. He wouldn't take showers forever. And it's always hard to say, have we showered today? Especially to a grown man, you know? It's, I tell my kids that, oh, we're sweating today. We play hard. Okay, shower. Can't do that to a grown man. I still didn't have a clear idea of what to do. It was a really nice respite to be there. It was a break from, you know, my existence as it was. But I needed a new way to live. I needed a new way to think. I needed to change some basic things about myself. And I was uncertain of how to do that. And I wasn't really even completely ready to open my mind to that possibility yet. I mean, it's hard to graft a new idea onto a closed mind. Doug says that this is pretty common. A lot of people either say they don't want help or they need so much help that simply dropping them off at a shelter or giving them a phone number to get some medical treatment isn't enough. And Doug says the longer someone is on the street, the harder it is to get back to a regular life. When you don't have access to things like a shower or oven or, or those things for so long, you just forget about them. And I think that's what happened with Kevin. I brought him straight in from the street where he hadn't had a shower in months, you know, access to one. And then all of a sudden, here's one right, right next door to him in the bathroom. And he'd walk past it every day. Kevin tried to make it on his own a couple of times. He'd go to a shelter that was supposed to lead to some kind of stable housing. But chronic homelessness makes that really hard. Last year, only 17% of chronically homeless people like Kevin left the county's programs for a permanent home. Most go back on the streets. For Kevin, that meant coming back to Doug and Bailey's. And this time, Bailey wasn't putting up with a lot of the stuff she did before. I was six months pregnant, so I was way naggier. <laughs> you know that, huh? Yeah. Way, way less tolerant of the homeless smell. You know, six months pregnant, I'm like, dude. And I just went in there one day, I'm like, dude, you've got till six to stop being homeless. You can't stop that, there's the door. I'm too pregnant to deal with this. If Kevin were on the streets today and he tried to get his own apartment, it would be pretty hard. One estimate shows there are only enough affordable apartments in the county to serve about 7% of single homeless adults. That causes a ripple effect all the way down to the street level, where people are just trying to get into the door of a shelter. And since Kevin was so bad off and needed so much help, he says having someone there like Doug by his side who knew what services were available was crucial. I think there's something of tremendous value to have another human reach out to you, to elicit a response from you, one that you can't so easily dismiss as seeing a phone number on a billboard and passing it by. Kevin says there was no one program that helped him turn his life around. The drug and alcohol treatment program he'd been going to eventually led to a detox program. That led to a sober living residence and finally a place of his own. Kevin says somewhere along the way, something clicked. It wasn't anything anyone said, it just came from within him. Kevin is actually a manager now at an oil express in Concord. He's been sober for five years. This last October 25th was his anniversary. He's doing well. 
I'd spent such a large portion of my life like not pursuing dreams and and you know and wasting life that now I'm just really all about living it and doing the kind of things that a lot of people talk about doing or dream about doing and never really do I'm just I'm down for doing that now if somebody says hey I'd like to go skydiving I'm like let's go do it Kevin became part of Doug and Bailey's family he would spend Christmas with them and normally he couldn't give much but Bailey remembers after Kevin turned it around after he went all in and sobered up he bought the family a present that sits in their living room to this day. So there's a leg lamp in your <laughs> living room, and it's from the Christmas story, right? Yeah. That's the Christmas story lamp. Yeah. So the Christmas story things, because Kevin loves the Christmas story. It was that Christmas when he he bought all of us big gifts. We leave the leg lamp out year round. It never goes that. away. <laughs> out of all those awards over there on the wall and everything, that's the best. Wait, what's I the had. what's the award? What? It's the, the award. award that he turned his life around, man. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, it's an award. But to me, I look at it different. I look at it like that's the point where he did his thing and turned his life around. After Kevin was off on his own doing well, Bailey's mom resurfaced. She wasn't okay. She called Bailey after just getting out of jail, and Doug went and picked her up. She came back to live with the family for a couple of months, and they tried to help her get clean. Bailey says her mom had access to the same programs that Kevin had access to. But her mom just couldn't make it work. If you don't mind me asking, has your mom turned it around? Has she been? Yeah, she turned it around. She's right over there in that wooden box. Bailey got the call in June 2015. Her mom ended up in Vallejo. She was found in a drug house with a cocktail of drugs in her system. She was less than 100 pounds, 51 years old. Next time on American Suburb. It was a special graduation ceremony for black students. Why some people in one Bay Area city are so upset tonight. The problem with the district was they didn't know how to celebrate the African-American community. They weren't ready for such a dramatic demographic shift. It happened like rapidly. What you're seeing here tonight is a formation of a true African-American community in the city of Antioch. And then all of a sudden, I, I start receiving a number of alarming uh, phone calls, threatening phone calls. Well, hate and, 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 and racism got into it. If I know what I know now, I would never move out here. They do more for the kids that's locked up than they do for the kids that's out here. We're an urban community, and at this school in particular, it's, an inner, it's we're facing inner city problems. The black community out here has to have its Boston Tea Party you know, moment. We come together and say, you know what? We're not Oakland, we're not East Palo Alto, we're not San Francisco, we are Antioch. And we, we too sing Antioch. I'm Sandhya Dirks. And I'm Devin Kadiyama. You've been listening to American Suburb. Thanks to the San Francisco Foundation for supporting this project. American Suburb was edited by Julia McAvoy. Executive producers are Holly Kernan and Ethan Lindsay. And if you like American Suburb, subscribe to us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.